Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. Today is World Kombucha Day, and it also marks the third episode in a series of episodes that feature kombucha, conversations with people who produce kombucha, brew it, sell it, and educate about it. Today's conversation is with Hannah Crum. Hannah is the founder of Kombucha Camp and the founding board member of KBI, or Kombucha Brewers International. Kombucha Camp is an incredible online resource for those who want to learn about kombucha and how to brew it. KBI is an international trade organization that supports kombucha brewers around the world and promotes legislation that improves the kombucha industry. Today's conversation covers all things kombucha. It also goes into Hannah's history with kombucha, how she first discovered it, and the role that it played in her own health and well-being. We talk about the future of kombucha and ferments in general, and all the ways that kombucha and live cultured foods influence our health and society. Please enjoy my conversation with Hannah Crum. So, Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Marion. So good to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you, and I want to just tell the listeners briefly how we met and how long we've known each other now, because it's been approximately forever um, (laughs) in kombucha years, which, as we know, is one year every week. So we met because I opened a kombucha cocktail bar, and you are a sleuth for kombucha businesses. So you actually found me. I had no idea there was a kombucha kind of group organization, but you reached out to me and we instantly connected and became kombucha comrades, kombucha pen pals. Um, and yeah, that was back in 20, 2010, I think, when I was still getting ready to open up. Well, and you, we still have two of your cocktail recipes on the blog. So uh, yes. if anyone wants to know how to make it dark and stormy, I don't remember the other one, but they're both up there still. Oh, my God. Wow. Yes. That is a throwback. The dark and stormy. That's going to. Yes. It brings back so many, so many memories. So that's kind of, you know, my reason for opening Culture Shock, the kombucha cocktail bar, was basically like I had a friend who discovered that if she put vodka in kombucha, it was the best cocktail ever. And she felt great afterwards. And she told me that. I started bringing a bottle of kombucha in my purse to any bar that I went to, ordering vodka neat and just pouring it in. And I thought, this is so stupid. There should be a kombucha cocktail bar. And so I made it happen. Um, And I would love to hear, you know, your journey with kombucha is even longer and more illustrious than mine. So I would love to hear going way back. How did you first get interested in and excited about kombucha? Absolutely. Well, first, I just want to say you're a woman ahead of your time, as always. Um, you, you've always been on the cutting edge of what's next to support people from that microbiome and health perspective. So just kudos to you for being on that forefront. Um, you know, I call it kombucha kismet because I didn't seek kombucha out. I had no idea it existed and I didn't have a specific health reason to find kombucha. It, it really was meant to be, we were destined to meet each other. Uh, So how did that happen? In 2003, I went to visit a friend from college. I'm from Midwest, went to U of I, Champaign-Urbana, and uh, he'd moved up to San Francisco. I was living in LA. So my husband and I went up there and we got this tour of his apartment, which 
really was this seminal moment because as we go into the bathroom and there's a filter on the shower. Now at that time, of course, I know to filter my drinking water, but of course, getting the chlorine off your body, what an amazing way to not ruin your skin and damage your skin microbiome. Oh, it was made so much sense. Go into the kitchen. He has this pink Himalayan salt crystal water. And I'm like, oh my gosh, salt is so bad for you. Why is it pink? And you drink this? This is crazy. Of course, um, pink Himalayan salt and Celtic sea salt is all the salt I use these days. And then we went into just a random room. It wasn't in the kitchen or anything. And there was a table with jars and they're covered with cloths and weird stuff is hanging out. And then they go, that's the kombucha. We didn't even try it. Um, but of course, when I returned to Los Angeles at Whole Foods, there were entire shelves of kombucha, right? It's that kind of thing. That word sticks in your mind. You hear about it. You're like, what is this? And there it was. So I went and I grabbed the ginger ale off the shelf. I cracked it open right there in the store. And you tell me your first time with kombucha and then I'll finish my story. <laughs> you know, I was raised in a family of like vinegar connoisseurs to the point that my brother for lunch used to take a little like Tupperware full of balsamic vinegar to school and just drink it. Wow. So I'm a freak. And the first time I tried kombucha, I was like, this is amazing. But I think for most people, it's like, wow, that tastes like vinegar. You know, to me, having literally been drinking vinegar, it tasted just very refreshing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think for me, I was the pickle juice drinker. So mm -hmm. I would sneak it out of the jar. My mom would always yell at me if she caught me. It's too salty. It's too this. But I think I was also sad standard American diet. And so I lacked nutrients in a living form. I lacked enzymes. You know, I was still, of course, I'm out of college, but we're cooking with a microwave and still eating ramen and processed foods. And as soon as I took that first sip, it was just like, oh, and the angels were singing and every nerve ending in my body was electrified because it is, it's that instant hit of nutrition. And mm -hmm. if you aren't doing a spit take or a sour face, um, it really is an amazing transformational experience. I think most people can remember their first sip of kombucha because it is so different uh, from what you might expect. But I just, yes, I fell in love. My thirst outgrew my budget. So, um, you know, cause I'm buying it every day. It's still like $5 a bottle, you know, uh, this is 20 years ago. And, but I knew that I, uh, could make my own because I had seen those magical jars. So I went to the library. This is where like my human design kicked in. I didn't know anything about it back then, but I'm an investigator heretic. And I just, I had to go and deep dive on everything. So I checked out every book from the library. I looked up every site on the internet. I uh, was confused as to why the information was so circular and self-referential and where's the source material. You know, that's the kind of person I am. I want to, uh, know everything about it. I read the scientific papers on it. I just was absolutely enthralled with kombucha. Little did I know it would become my entire career. But kombucha came in and transformed many things in my life that I didn't even know were, were an issue. So my digestion improved, my skin cleared up, I had more energy, I just felt good, which is those B vitamins in living form. And uh, I just so many things transformed as a result of falling in love with kombucha and learning how to brew my own. And uh, even when my friend I had my friend, LA is a large city. My friend lived on the east side. I'm on the west side. I had her bring me this baby. She's like, oh, my gosh, what is this placenta looking thing? It's an alien. I'm like, yeah, it's my baby. 
<laughs> and it was just this glorious moment. And um, it, it just, she just grew onto me, into me in my whole life. I was so fascinated by, um, by learning about kombucha. And then of course the microbiome, because she really is this portal into understanding fermentation, into understanding that we are interconnected beings on this planet. And that, um, despite Darwinism's emphasis on competition, that in fact, the vast majority of the world is cooperation and collaboration. I love the word symbiosis. And I think of you a lot, actually, whenever I hear that word, because, um, you know, you've been associated with it in my life in so many different ways. But it's so important, not only to the microbiome, but there's a lot of research coming out now and some incredible books about the ways that forests operate and trees communicate. And we think of natural environments, like you said, as this very competitive place. And for sure, there is healthy competition. And within our microbiome, you know, different microbes are trying to stake out their own niches and maybe even some more opportunistic pathogens find an empty niche and will take it over. But in general, the language of ecology is cooperative and symbiotic. It's a win-win. It's oh, you're struggling to get water into your tree roots? Well, I know that it's better for my growth if I have your canopy protecting me. So I'll send you a little bit of water so we can actually live together. And the more humans kind of reframe their take on nature, I think it'll help us reframe our own understanding of ourselves and how we might live in symbiosis across this great planet and across the universe. Because the longer we're thinking about life as us versus them, the more we're just driving ourselves towards disaster. Absolutely. And I think this is how human beings lived. We lived in harmony with nature. And um, and then we became incredibly mobile and society shifted. We had an industrial revolution, massive diasporas due to a wide variety of reasons and events. And, um, and even in our own local communities right now, we may not even know our neighbors, even though we live in the same area for years, decades. And I think that's really, we've lost contact with our local community. And it's part of why we feel so thirsty for this connection. And right, social media allegedly brings us together. And it does, it brings people from disparate parts of the world together around common topics and things. And it also drives a sense of division and loneliness when we allow these things to become addictions as opposed to the tools that they're intended to be. And uh, look, I struggle with technology addiction myself. I'm not going to lie. It, it's it's a fun toy and it also drives me absolutely batty. But back to the original point of cooperation. And, and as we've always said, symbiosis doesn't mean kumbaya. Uh, part right. of symbiosis is parasiticism. Mm -hmm. However, it's, a, it's about identifying these relationships. And what we really advocate is that commensal relationship where everybody benefits, where it's not just win-win, it's win-win-win, where there's a, a win for multiple uh, organisms, people, opportunities can all come together and harmonize. And this is what I love about kombucha and being this portal is you're consuming the brew of a culture. Some might say colony, I say culture, a community of organisms that have learned how to not just survive, but thrive. And so when we're putting this type of information into our body, there's so much DNA wisdom. So whether you believe in reincarnation or um, epigenetics, the reality is we have millions of years of information stored within our bodies. And yet we have turned into the only animal on this planet that doesn't know what to eat or how to feed itself. 
And that's because, again, we also consume a lot of propaganda and advertising, and that divorces us from truly feeling into our body, which is why trust your gut, which is our motto, isn't about doing what I say to do. It's about listening to your own body and trust your gut isn't trust your taste buds. It's those feedback loops. And the more that we can close those feedback loops, oh, let's say I have candida overgrowth, I'm going to crave sugar, but I put that sugar in my body and I feel terrible. So while the taste buds might enjoy the thrill of it, and those microbes are demanding it, I'm not getting a result that actually makes me feel good. Um, And in fact, the people who smell kombucha and think it's disgusting and gross and don't want anything to do with it are probably the people who need it the most. Because I have a feeling their microbes are like, oh, no, this stuff is going to come in and completely displace me. It's going to uh, cause my biofilm to liquidate. And I've staked out this territory. And, um, you know, so it's just kombucha just has this this wonderful way of working her way into your life. And again, opening the door. I thought sauerkraut smelled like stinky socks. And maybe it kind of still does, but I actually crave it. And it makes my mouth water when I when I smell it now, too. I mean, stinky socks are only stinky socks in the context of a stinky sock. Like there are a lot of fermented foods that if you got them out of context might not taste delicious. For example, kimchi is one of my favorite foods. I can just guzzle kimchi. But if you opened a jar two rooms away, I might think somebody farted. It is what it is. Cabbage just has that kind of like farty smell. It's not the kimchi's fault. It's releasing these sulfuric compounds into the air. And that's okay. Once you know that it's kimchi, it smells amazing. So context is king. And I'm going to point that context is king thought back to what you just said, because it's pretty much the thing that I am most passionate about. In our culture, there's this constant messaging. Treat yourself, treat yourself, treat yourself. To which I say, which self? (laughs) My tongue? My brain, my addictions, my overgrowths, or my best self, my health, my healing, my progress. And so like you're saying, you might find yourself craving a candy bar. And once in a while, that's going to be a useful or at least fun craving. You're craving it because it's Christmas Eve and you and your grandma always had you know, peppermint bark together. And so you want to have a piece and think of her or you're craving it because it's Halloween and you want to have, you know, one fun size bar because tradition, you know, and it's it's memories of childhood. But if you're craving it every day at 2 p.m. and then after you eat it, you're slumping over at your desk, then you're not treating yourself. You're treating your habit, your addiction, your sort of perhaps dysbiosis, maybe even your dehydration. I've found that if I'm dehydrated, I'm much more likely to crave sugar or if I'm underslept or under a lot of stress. So this sort of conversation, which becomes very pathological, but sort of masks itself as positive. Oh, treat yourself, treat yourself, treat yourself. It's always good to say, okay, but how will I actually feel? Will the results that I get, as, as you just said, will the results that I get feel like a treat? Because if not, that wasn't a real treat, you know? And once in a while for the nostalgia, for the family, for the love, it can be worth it to feel not quite your best. But if every day, every week, every month, you're doing something to treat yourself, quote unquote, that makes you feel much worse then that's not a treat and we have to reframe the conversation around what it actually means to treat our bodies, our minds, our tummies, our microbiomes, our futures 
well so we can actually thrive. And that's why kombucha is so amazing because in my opinion and many others experience, it feels like a treat. It's this luscious beverage. It's so complex. It almost feels like a cocktail all by itself. There it is. There's the kombucha for those watching a beautiful red brew. Can I ask what flavor that is? It's my old standby, Love Potion 99, Blueberry Lavender Rose. Ooh, that's so We sounds... use the actual rose petals and lavender mm. flowers along with sometimes frozen, sometimes fresh blueberries. But there's, you know, this isn't juice. It's the actual elements and strained out. But, you know, you can do that at a homebrew scale. It's a lot harder to execute that style of fermentation yeah. flavoring when you're in a larger commercial setting. That's gorgeous. And I actually just bought the seasonal flavor from GT's last week. I think it's called Love Potion or Love something. It has mm -hmm. a beautiful label with a heart on it. And I'm a sucker for GT's seasonal flavor. I have to get it. The artwork alone is worth the purchase. But it was like a rose berry something. And I'm not always a, f a floral girl, but that rose kombucha berry hybrid is primo stuff. I loved it. And my five-year-old actually stole the bottle from me and drank the second half of it. So <laughs> child approved, at least if your child has been drinking kombucha since she was six months old, then she'll definitely like it. I think children love kombucha. There's their, you know, the parents have this, and I've seen this because I've done demos in a variety like Mother Earth News Fair and various farmers markets and events and green festivals and sampling out kombucha and doing different things. And the parents will be like, oh, I don't think they'll like that. And I'm like, okay, well, that's because you don't like it. Right. But the reality is most children haven't had that same decades of consuming processed sugars and sour and bitter are the flavors of health and digestion. It doesn't mean that we need to only eat those flavors. However, having a little bit of those flavors at every meal will start the whole digestive process by generating gastric juices and saliva. So that when you put something in your mouth, it's already ready to be digested because those enzymes are ready to do their work. But I think children actually love kombucha and most kids um, will find find it very delicious. Now, a friend of mine uh, who teaches how to help picky eaters says whether it's kombucha or sauerkraut, just hold it in your mouth for a few minutes and then you can spit it out. But usually by a week or two into that process, they're just drinking it because sometimes it just takes time. But even just holding it in your mouth for a little bit, you're saturating, you're literally giving information and education to your body so that it is ready to consume those things. And so many people find like maybe their first sip of kombucha was really intense. Maybe they then go find a softer flavor profile or you dilute it with water. And what happens is you start to crave those acids. You start to crave uh, those nutrients because they're in that living form and your body knows exactly what to do with it. And so some people say, oh, I'm addicted to kombucha. I'm like, well, I don't think addiction is the correct term. I think you probably had a nutrient deficiency somewhere and kombucha is helping to fill in that gap. And so, you know, I always say ebb and flow. Uh, at some point you might drink a lot of kombucha, but then you might find a maintenance glass or two is all you need. And then sometimes you'll find you only drink it a couple times a week and that's okay. Like all types of consumption are okay. As long as you're listening to your body and trusting your gut. 
I also love that you brought that up because I want to interject here that I've had a couple times in my life where I was going through a bit of a health crisis. And during that time, I could not drink kombucha for as many as six months because the yeasts were going right into my immune system and aggravating them and I would get itchy. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard for me psychologically to accept it for a few weeks because I'm a little Miss Kombucha gal. And kombucha is, of course, healthy and wonderful. But... If you're going through um, a healing journey where you're currently very dysbiotic, where you're extremely sensitive to histamines, where your gut mucosa is totally destroyed, Mm -hmm. you could have a period of time where kombucha is too intense for you or where the yeasts or histamines that could naturally be present could irritate you. That's totally fine. And it doesn't mean anything bad about kombucha. It just has to do with where you are in your journey. So I've had parts of my journey because my gut was destroyed by antibiotics when I was a child, like more than a decade taking antibiotics chronically. It's Mm. taken a lot of work to rebuild my gut. And to a certain extent, I had to do a lot of building before I could tolerate some of the natural ferments, right? Because I was sensitive to anything histamine, anything with yeast. But now... Obviously, I feel great when I consume them and I'm very, very grateful and I see them as healing and beneficial. But I think it's really great to this is everything in health, right? Everyone is desperate to have these either or conversations. And I love juicy nuance. I love messy middle grounds. I love that gray area, you know, gray matter, gray area. Let's dig into it. So I'm a kombucha gal. I brew it. I love it. And in in a focused attempt to prevent food allergies in my two younger children, I started them on probiotics when they were a day old and on fermented foods the minute they were on solids. And kombucha, I I think they each tried like a fingertip of it when they were between four and six months old. I wanted to really infuse their system with live cultures from second one. And that's worked fabulously. And they've never had these issues that I've struggled with. But if you are coming off of a long illness, if you've had a long-term antibiotic overuse history, if your gut mucosa is worn down, if you know you can't tolerate high histamine foods, there may be some healing that you need to do to get to the place where you can luxuriate in kombucha. And that's totally okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, and I often find that milk kefir, even for folks who have histamine allergies, um, the fermented dairy, because those microbes consume the lactose. So a lot of folks aren't actually lactose intolerant, they're pasteurization intolerant, because there's no microbes there to help you process those milk sugars. But that because again, what is milk, it creates mucus, right? And so when we need to rebuild that mucosal lining, Milk kefir is one of the best things I recommend for folks at that point, if they can tolerate it. Again, it's listening to your body, listening to that bio, those biofeedback loops and seeing if it's the right fit for you. But a lot of folks find that that can have a very nourishing and reparative, restorative impact. But again, everybody is designed to consume fermented foods. And I think it goes, I call us bacterio sapiens, Marian, because I think that more accurately encapsulates the relationship we have to our environment. And human beings have been fermenting, cultivating ferments. Like, are we cultivating them or are they cultivating us? Um, but, But the reality is, is that we have been giving them food and you know, holding them in a place of high esteem, whether that's your bread, your beer, your wine, your sauerkraut, your kimchi, it doesn't matter. Every single culture around the world on this planet has traditional fermented foods that they do give to their children from day one, that they do consume on a regular basis. And that does provide the staff of life. We get, we're lazy because we grew up with refrigerators. So we assume 
that refrigeration is how everything was preserved. But in fact, fermentation is our original preservatives. And so um, humans have just been relying on this symbiotic relationship for a really long time. And it's exciting to reunite, to reawaken, uh, to go through this renaissance and rediscover First of all, the wonderful flavors, and then of course, the wonderful health benefits that we receive from consuming fermented foods in their many forms, which is why I think kombucha is not an end point. You don't just stop at kombucha, like kombucha opens up. It's this gateway, yes. this portal. It's a gateway drug. It, it really is. It's a gateway for men, for sure, into your gut health, into all of these exciting topics that you and I love to talk about so much because microbes are magic. They are. And why do I say that? Because when you go to a magician show and you see them do their trick, when you cannot discern how the, the mechanism by which they have made this magic happen, that's magic. We don't see how microbes affect us. We have a whole cloud of them surrounding us. We're like pig pen from <laughs> the Peanuts cartoon where we literally have a unique, as unique as our fingerprint, DNA signature of microbes that literally are our force field. And so how do you strengthen your force field? You've got to go from the inside out. So it's about putting the right foods into our bodies. It's also getting the chemicals off of our bodies that want to harm uh, all of these beautiful systems. And then it's using, right? It's like getting our hands dirty in the dirt. It's hugging, it's kissing. It's, you know, we call that common immunity, community. We have to come together with other people because we're constantly exchanging DNA information. And when you get it in these trace amounts that your immune system can then create antibodies to, you don't necessarily have to go through the upgrade of getting sick in order to completely reshape your microbiome or your immune system, right? Because they're essentially the same thing. Um, but when we can have these interactions on a regular basis with the dog licking you or petting the cat or being with farm animals or what, whatever it might be, but every single way that we can interact with nature and dirt I mean, why do we only take soil-based organisms in a pill? Get into the dang soil. <laughs> that is where you are going to get them. And uh, and we just, I don't know, I just feel like there's so much fun, liveliness, dynamic energy that we get. And then, of course, all the science and the research, like you were alluding to before, about the way forests communicate, uh, about forest bathing, about getting the sunlight on our skin for the hormones we need as well as, right, like Everything in nature is designed to support us to thrive. Yes. And um, in my episode a few weeks ago on the microbiome, I quoted this researcher, Dr. Angela Douglas, in her amazing book, which is like a quick intro to the microbiome. She wrote, the truth about human life is that we were multi-organismal before we were multicellular. So pointing back to what you just said, like we have evolved alongside these organisms. It's not as if it's some novel idea to take a pill full of probiotics. Like you're actually not a human without microbes. You're just a shell. So we are bacteria sapiens. We are fungal sapiens and viral sapiens. And we are just this walking ecology. And it's so important. It's so exciting to me. I mean, when I look back almost 20 years ago when I first started looking into this because my gut was destroyed and I had to understand why. And luckily I had this kind of like just tickle in the back of my head, like, could it be all the antibiotics that I've taken? It just felt like it was, right? No one really told me that, but it just kind of occurred to me and I'm very grateful. But 
it's very exciting to me that all these things that were just kind of hunches of mine 20 years ago now have hundreds, thousands, you know, tens of thousands of publications supporting their validity. And we're only building on that. The research is only getting better. Our technique for looking into these things is only getting better. Um, to that point, there was a study, and I believe you maybe made this connection or somehow facilitated it, the study out of Georgetown where Kraft Kombucha gave their product, and they showed that type 2 diabetics who were drinking kombucha had um, beneficial postprandial glucose responses. That was so exciting. And again, like hints to the complexity of this whole system, right? Because- Well, and the alcohol content- of her product was one and a half percent. So, oh. you know, there, there are these demons and boogeymen that we create out of various things. I think sugar is one of them. I actually think sugar, when we're talking about cane sugar, right? Like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about chemicals processed in a lab? Are we talking about petrochemicals used to extract sugar from corn? <laughs> or are we talking about a grass that human beings have been cultivating for over 5,000 years that does have a feedback loop? You consume too much sugar, you know what? You got a tummy ache. You do not feel good. It does have a self-limiting factor. Um, and the other one is alcohol, because I truly believe that, in fact, human beings crave it and need it. And when we get it in this low alcohol, I would call healthy, low alcohol, healthy, low alcohol format, where the alcohol is serving a preservative function. It's also serving a medicinal function, meaning it helps to thin the blood, eases absorption of the nutrients. And I truly believe that this contributes to um, people who maybe struggle with alcoholism, why they can drink kombucha and not have a negative impact. And again, everyone's going to make the choice that's right for them. Some people are going to avoid all alcohol, no matter what. I just truly believe that when we're getting it in this living form supported with these nutrients, with the entourage of uh, B vitamins and organic acids that you're giving your body what it needs. And therefore it doesn't crave more intense forms of alcohol, but when we're pasteurizing it, when we're distilling it and concentrating it, well, that's great as a carrier for tinctures and whatnot, those forms of alcohol are devoid of the reason why our ancestors fermented all the flowers and all the different herbs and things that they found, uh, which truly had that positive medicinal beneficial effect for us. And so, uh, yes, we love the research. We love that. And I just wanted to speak to that a little bit, because I think we get, we have been caught up on this notion of scientism or this idea that like science is this religion, when in fact, it's just a method of inquiry. And the reason we even go to the scientific method in the first place is because the phenomena already exists. It's absolutely true that people for hundreds, thousands of years have been drinking kombucha and share similar uh, benefits from drinking it. And these are not controlled studies. These are people who are out in the world eating who knows what. But isn't that a more accurate depiction of what something's capable of doing as opposed to we're never going to not everybody's ever going to always eat the same food or have the same lifestyle or have the same stresses. We're never going to control for every single factor what it means to be a human being on this planet. Uh, so I just I I'm consistently challenged by the the lack of validity given to anecdotal information, um, because even if it is the placebo effect, so what it works. Right. 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 And so much of pharma is also placebo effect. And that's why it works. Right. And so what is it that's actually working? It's 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 us. It's how we interact with these things and, and how we um, play into them. So I'm not saying there isn't a place for scientific study. And I am excited that we have better tools to understand this information more fully. And I just get frustrated when people, well, but there's no human trials on kombucha. How could we possibly know that it's actually, 
it just You're it, like, it's drink baffling one. to me because we're intelligent beings that yeah. uh, have DNA wisdom and can observe that it has been beneficial uh, for so long. Yeah, I mean, definitely when something has been consumed to a beneficial end for thousands of years, that's a pretty good start when it comes to an evidence base. And I mean, I love what you said there about the reality, which is that science is a method of inquiry. I love the science around the microbiome, not just because it gives it more legitimacy in the, you know, medical sphere and the future of health and public health and how we understand our place on this planet. But I also just I love um, learning who's in there. And I also love actually, frankly, how messy it is. One of the things that I really, really love about microbiome research is that it's a mess. They're like, oh, well, we couldn't really isolate it to this one strain. Like, turns out there was like a hundred different strains in there. And we're not, and actually we can't grow this one in the lab because it only eats the secondary production of another strain in your gut. So like we can cultivate lactobacillus acidophilus in a lab because we know what it eats. But it then, you know, excretes compounds and other microbes degrade that excretion. And since we don't know how to like capture the excretion to feed the other microbe, we can't cultivate it. I love what a mess it is. I love how it kind of puts back in our face like, yes, science is powerful. You can observe. You can try to understand. But if you try too hard to dial this down to one component, you're not going to do it right. Um, and there are some people trying to do that, of course, in this space because humans always want to simplify. I thought it was so funny. Uh, years ago, obviously, had a food allergy baby. And I'm thinking, okay, I have to rebuild her gut, diversify, nourish it with many microbes. Meanwhile, over in science, they were like, we're going to put um, – we're going to give like hookworm to uh, babies that have allergies because we – like they had this understanding that – her immune system was bored, right, or like not being trained towards tolerance. But instead of thinking, let's create this kind of messy, complicated ecosystem inside of kids, they thought, we'll just give them one parasite. That'll do it, right? They just were desperate for this very simple, mechanistic, medical approach, which in my experience almost never works, or at least doesn't work in the long term, because the long term, like you said, you can't control for all of the factors. And it's a huge thing to overcome when it comes to nutrition research because, frankly, the mood that you're in when you eat your meal can impact your glucose response or how you digest it. And we're never going to be able to control for all of that. And even if you're providing all the meals to a participant in a, a nutrition study, things happen. People eat differently. They consume differently. They're running around. They're stressed out. All those things. They have a kombucha. They don't have a kombucha. And also, I don't want to wade too deeply into controversial territory here, but this um this phrase that became popular you know trust science as a scientist that phrase has always bothered me because the point of science is not to trust it and to ask again and again and again and if someone seems to have proved something you go that's interesting let's look at it a different way and see if we can disprove it oh no it stood up well let's look at it a different way and you just keep turning the ball and examining it from different sides to me, that's what science is all about, is saying, I'm not so sure. Let's try again. And so I shudder a little bit when I hear trust science chanted as this kind of religious doctrine because we're not meant to trust it. We're meant to keep asking. And when we have anecdotal stories, 
we can and should ask questions. Oh, really? That was your experience? Tell me more. You know, what was it like when you were healing from that illness and you used kombucha to help you during chemotherapy? You know, whatever the story is, we can and should ask questions. But that's what science is, too. And if we treat science like a religion, we're doing a huge disservice to science. That's not what science is. Thousand percent agree. And I think it's this reductionist sort of mentality that I want to say came out of the industrial revolution and good. It's great that we figured out how to make factories and be efficient. But when we treat people like they're machines, we really do a disservice to our humanity because we are messy. We are complex. We do have knowledge and senses that goes beyond just the five that we talk about. And, and this is what I mean about tapping into that DNA wisdom, these hunches that you were receiving was your organism saying, hey, we already know how to survive and thrive. Just listen to us. But again, because of propaganda, because of other types of inf other people's points of view or products they want to sell you or whatever it might be, right? Propaganda can mean all kinds of things. Um, you know, we can be dissuaded from having that personal relationship with our bodies. And that to me ultimately is what kombucha really does is it helps us bring us back to ourselves to really to remember. And what I mean by that is to put our whole being back together, um, to put all the pieces back together into this complex whole like you're talking about. We don't even truly understand understand the role that viruses and whatnot play in our body. Are they making us sick or are they the ones cleaning up the mess on the other end of it? We simply do not have the sophistication to understand fully what these things are doing. So we're making assumptions that are probably wrong <laughs> or at least need to be evolved. Uh, and that's what's exciting about living in this modern era where we have the opportunity to fully dive into quantum physics as well as um, all of the other ways we have of looking at these problems and solutions. And I love that we're not going to find the one answer. I love that the, the microbiomes contain parasites and, and it truly brings up, is there such a thing as a pathogen? I would say no. I would say that um, pleomorphic, right? Like the, all the organisms that are in your body helping you to thrive and survive when you die, those are the same organisms because the chemistry shifts right? You're no longer breathing oxygen. The processes have changed. There's a different chemistry and pH happening in your body. Those organisms now then turn into the ones that are going to eat you and decompose you and put you back into the soil and put your nutrients back so that the next generation of things can thrive, right? It's like why the leaves fall off the trees. They fall to the roots so that in spring, these nutrients are there for them to use so that they can flourish again. And you know, we have this weird hang up about death here in the Western culture where we're not allowed to mourn. We're not allowed to honor the fact that this is something that's going to happen to all of us no matter what. And so we live in fear and we want to live forever. We want to be young forever. And all of those are great, wonderful pursuits. I truly believe that, uh, you know, I personally am pursuing fertility for as long as I can, because if I'm fertile, that means I'm able to I have the ability to reproduce. That means everything is flourishing as it should. Um, and I think that is the way to longevity is to pursue those types of outcomes. However, it, it, I'm also not afraid of the fact that someday I will no longer be in this form. And my hope is, you know, I don't know, am I going to turn into coral reef? Will I be buried with a mushroom bag? I don't know, but I don't think I'm going to have a bunch of formaldehyde pumped into my body so that I can look perfect in a box <laughs> while people come up and pay their respects. I just don't think that makes a lot of sense. We're just going to get a giant vat of kombucha and we're going to just drop you into it. I love we're, it. We're going to put a scoby <laughs> on top and that's just going to be it. That's the funeral. 
is and put me on display and let what happens over time do I stay preserved or does it eat me I have no idea I think we're gonna find out in the moment it's gonna be special yeah you know I think when you said a, a moment ago um is there such a thing as a pathogen I would say that and this is true in humans and society and in many other things that it context is key you know a beneficial organism can have something happen to it. It can be stressed by some sort of evolutionary push. Its environment, its diet can be constrained and it can become dangerous. Also, some organisms know how to harness the onboard functions of our body, like cholera, right? Cholera goes and it grabs hold of a function that we have to help us survive and it uses that function to kill us. And I think we've seen this with COVID as well. An organism that's figured out how to harness a beneficial operation, a function of our body, and then in some contexts use it against us. And I think, you know, we see with humans right now, you take a person who is born a beautiful, lovely baby, and then over years, decades of stress and and hurts and not being allowed to express themselves and talk about it, you can create someone who's very angry and can become dangerous. So are there pathogens? In some contexts, yes. But, you know, you hear E. coli and you go, oh, my God, food poisoning. Well, there's tons of E. coli in you right now, my friends. I mean, hopefully, because E. coli is actually a very beneficial organism. And only a couple manifestations of E. coli will harm you. And if you have many E. coli in your body, you're healthier and heartier. Same thing with C. diff. C. diff is inside a lot of us. And it's only when after a long course of antibiotics, there aren't other members playing on the playground in the microbiome with C. diff that he gets mad and takes over and causes serious problems. So context, context, context. You can harm a person by isolating them. You can harm a bacteria by isolating it and pushing it to its outer limits where it feels like it has to fight to survive. So yeah, I, I kind of love that. You same with that. human beings. But what exactly. you're what you're saying is so legendarily on his deathbed, Pasteur supposedly said, Ce n'est pas le microbe, c'est le terroir. So it's not the germ, it's the environment. Yeah. And we have many sayings that support this. A rotten apple spoils the whole bunch, right? Yeah. So uh, this is a concept that we understand. And this is it's it's pleomorphic. And what that means is that they have the ability to change based on environmental factors. And so do we. And this is also why I think of uh, human beings as bacterio sapiens. You know, a back you might consume a fermented food or have a bacteria or something and it ruptures and now it's DNA material is out free floating. Other organisms can come and capture some of that DNA and use it to evolve. And the way I sort of see this represented in our current culture, I think this is a great way to externalize this example is through memes. The meme has an image that you're familiar with. And yet because someone has shifted, has taken the DNA of the meme and put a different phrase on it, you keep twisting and turning what that meaning is. And that I think that's a really fun way to understand that our creativity is like this. We're always borrowing from other people. We're always taking from something that came before, combining it into its own thing and putting it back out there. And then other people come and do the same thing. And so it, it, it's just this natural way that we spread information and that we physically materialize as uh, bacterial sapiens in the world. But I really think it's that, like you said before, path, uh, opportunistic pathogens, the opportunity is there because the environment has been damaged in some way or hasn't been, um, hasn't been given the proper diversity it needs. And I agree, I love that 
we see how messy everything is and that my unique signature and yours don't have to be identical. And this is where I get suspicious of like, why is bacillus coagulans in every single food? What, how many, how much GBI 50 do I need to have in my diet? And everything's as probiotic or then it's prebiotic. So we need all this inulin in liquid form instead of like you're saying, having the fiber from the actual fruits and vegetables, right? We're always trying to shortcut or what's the quick, easy way to get all my nutrients without actually having to eat the delicious foods that they come from. And part of that is because monocropping is literally anti-nature, like nothing in nature monocrops. Everything mm. has some other, you know, like, like the three sisters, corns, beans, and squash. They work well together because they each support the growth of, of each other. And it's unfortunate that we've commoditized our food to the point where, you know, subsidies are paying to keep these systems in place. You have to pay more for the food that isn't going to poison you as much as the food that is poisoned, which again, it's like, I understand from a market perspective how we end up here because whatever yields the highest profit is what's going to be valued in a capitalistic society. And this is where we have to have consciousness legislated, unfortunately, right? right? And, you know, there are more toxic chemicals permitted in our food than there are in Europe. And that's really frustrating when you can go to another country and see that their ingredients are a lot cleaner and don't cause as much physical harm. And yet those same companies, like how do you, from an ethical standpoint, stand by your products when you're just putting cheaper, lower quality ingredients here in the United States, because you can get away with it. Exactly. Like it just, it, it, it really frustrates me the way our current systems are set up. And this is where I hope you, Marion, and people like you who want to go and do policy work and, and shift these things can really start to, like, we have to somehow wrest back control from the moneyed interests so that there's a balance. Like, I'm not saying don't have products and don't have a marketplace. Absolutely, we want that. And how can we value and reinvest in those who want to do it the hard way where you're not monocropping, where you're not relying on uh, GMO seed or, you know, spraying glyphosate on everything as a desiccant so that you preserve it. And then everyone thinks they have gluten intolerance. And in fact, they're just allergic to poison. <laughs> Those pesky poison allergies, they really, they really will get you. I actually, I had a very um, funny interaction with a six-year-old child uh, yesterday because my daughter came home from school and she had this bag of treats that her teacher, they had some activity in class where it was the 100th day of school. So they were making like a bag of 100 snacks. And her teacher was like, don't worry, I made sure everything was gluten free and dairy free. And it's safe for you. So she's like, yay. And she makes this bag of treats and she brings it home. And I'm like, oh, boy. Like it was like GMO corn and like Cheerios, which are just like shown to be little pills of glyphosate and then Skittles, which are full of all of the worst food coloring and I think now are like illegal in California. So <laughs> I, I was like, I remained calm. I thought about how any other mom in America would react, which is to say they wouldn't. And I breathed through how kind and thoughtful her teacher was to make sure everything was gluten-free and dairy-free. It's so nice. Thank you so much. And, um, and I said to her, I I'd really, you rather not, uh, not eat that. And her little friend was over and her friend is, is English. She's from England. And she's like, uh, well, and I won't try to do the accent because I am not gifted. But she was like, well, why, why can't she eat that? And I was like, well, in our family, we don't eat food coloring. And she was like, why? 
And I was like, well, you might be interested to, to know that in the country that you're from, the same colors being fed to our children here are illegal. And yet here, they're considered just fine. So while your government back home defines them as neurotoxic, poisonous substances, here it's just a lovely good time and children should consume them all day, every day, just unendingly. So I tend to side with the European distinction, which is to say that food coloring is toxic and we shouldn't really consume it. And I think that your people would agree. And she just kind of stared at me. And my older daughter was like, Mom, just drop it. Like, what are you doing? Why are you harassing a six-year-old? I was just trying to say that I think her people are doing it right. And I'm just trying to live that European lifestyle. But, you know, she did survive the brief chemical exposure. She made it. She's still here today. We lived We lived to talk about it. But it is a real shame the way that our food system has been destroyed. And I think when I think about humans... In modern society, and maybe forever, I just think about failing forward over and over. Like we have these new ideas and we mostly get it wrong and we fail, but we keep kind of just stumbling forward and we learn things along the way, hopefully, right? People say you win or you learn. We do a lot of learning as humans and not so much winning. So a lot of these systems that we've put in place, which I mean, many of them had the best of intentions, these subsidies, these, you know, crop price fixing that helps farmers avoid total destruction and keeps these family farms that have been in families for generations, keeps them afloat and allows them to sell commodity crops to be turned into fuel or animal feed, which is a whole other topic because it shouldn't be animal feed. I get that the person who wrote those laws was like, I am helping people, right? And that's really? why, I mean, I think like they, they I wanted, wanted to I wanna believe that's true. Yes. And I just don't know when you have a few people able to control policy right. and who gets enriched by those industries. Right. Like we just there's too much money in politics. And until yes. we can completely divorce money from politics, which is like <laughs> That's cute. That's sweet. In America? Please. I, well, look, even John McCain was into it, you know, know. like uh, ran Less on it. Heart. But what's never going to happen? This is the unfortunate gridlock our politics has come into is it's become this ideological as opposed to what's best for all humanity uh, right. in this country so that we can actually get things done. Um, obviously, we're not going to solve that in this conversation. And and I just I don't know that I trust these. You know, you look at um you know, the guy who who totally went hook, line and sinker with the sugar industry. And then I'm th I want to say Ansel Adams, but I know that's not right. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but Ansel Keys, that's it. Oh, uh -huh. um, who who then blasted fat as being so bad for you when in right. fact fat is fuel. Look at what your candle is made of. What are you putting in the oil lamp? It is fat. <laughs> fat doesn't make you fat. And, you know, it's been it, it just it, I feel burned as a as a U.S. citizen because I think too much of our policy has been written by people who benefit from you being sick, from benefit from selling chemicals. Um, that they had a glut of post World War Two and didn't know what else to do. Why is there fluoride? Why is the neurotoxin in our freaking water? It makes no sense. And yet they keep oh, well, but, but, but your teeth and but but no. <laughs> it is I think it no to, to bring it and back here's to why the... I think it happened. Because I feel like the United States, we were kind of like this blank Petri dish. It's unfortunate because there was a complete slaughter of the people who lived here. And when the Europeans, the, the ones who came over, the crazy Puritans and, you know, all the other people who came here, we don't have these deep rooted hundreds of years, the same church, the same people, the same, you know, buildings and cultures and foods, everything came together in a melting pot. Well, unfortunately, that allowed an environment 
where this type of thing could be planted and flourish. And these chemical companies that came and set up shop here, unfortunately, have taken control of so many aspects of our life that now we have to have testing to find PFAS. We have to, um, you know, be very vigilant against all of the chemicals that people will make and not care that then they're dumping them into the rivers and streams and who cares what cancers everyone's going to get. We're not going to pay for the cleanup. How many super fun sites are there in this country? It's just ridiculous. Like it's, it's unconscionable. And I don't understand. I mean, I do understand, right. It's money, it's money and it's um, laziness and it's not my problem. And you know, someone else can figure this out and deal with it later. And this is where I think all this has a point incorporating ancient techniques like our ancestors knew what the heck they were doing and they didn't need microscopes and they didn't need um you know technology to figure out how to thrive how to live in harmony with their environment and i think the more we can reincorporate ancient wisdom into our modern life that we're just all going to have a, a much happier existence in the long run yeah i think I mean, there's so much that I could say in response to that, because I think that oftentimes it's a mix of some nefarious bad actors and then other people who either think I'm only doing good or they think, oh, I'll make this trade off. You know, I'll, I'll work like I'll work with the devil and hope that I can still get like God's work done. Right. That kind of nuance. Um, and then, of course, it compounds upon itself. And, and like you say, like you end up with a glut of chemicals. You're like, how can I not lose money on this? How can I how can I use these? Um, but I, I do think that um, there's a great book. It's very short because I believe it's like a printing of what was once just a long essay. It's by Barbara Ehren, Barbara Ehrenreich. She wrote many great books on women's health. She wrote Nickel and Dimed, lots of things talking about how women are mistreated and underpaid in our culture. Um, But she wrote a book called Witches, Midwives, and Nurses. And it looked at the history of ripping the healing traditions away from women and how men wanted to dominate the health industry. And so anything that came from the sort of historic, intuitive knowledge of women, even if it worked, was considered crap and just totally tossed aside. And so to your point about looking back and learning from the wisdom of our ancestors, as a woman and as someone who has had to totally heal herself from the inside out after being, let's just put it bluntly, medically abused throughout my entire childhood via seemingly well-meaning doctors who didn't want to spend more than five minutes with me and would just tell me as a, as my weight ballooned and I felt horrible and they put me on more and more antibiotics. They just kept saying, you know, eat less, move more, eat less, move more, lose weight, wouldn't tell me how to do it, wouldn't tell me to eat real foods or certainly not to drink kombucha. I did blessedly have one doctor who, when I was feeling sick every morning, suggested that I might take like the milk off my cereal. And that did make a huge difference in my life, but not necessarily because milk was the problem, but because my gut could not digest it after whatever, a decade of antibiotics. Anyway, I think that so much of healing wisdom and traditions have been ripped away from us, partially because our culture mistrusts women, and women were so often the seat of healing in traditional cultures. And so as a woman, it's been a big um, 
enjoyable, scary, fun, exciting journey for me to reclaim my intuition and my wisdom around healing and these traditional practices. Like I'm always joking that um, I'm not pregnant, but I am barefoot in the kitchen, right? Like all the time. And I know that 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 for a long time, that was like the anti-feminist thing. Like, oh, men just want you barefoot in the kitchen. I want to be barefoot in the kitchen. Like that's where I take care of my family. That's where I feed my children. I build their immune systems and their nervous systems and their mental health. It all starts at the family table. And that all starts in the kitchen with my fermented foods. I'm making my fresh sourdough. I'm making my kombucha. You know, we're all encultured together. We're all sharing microbes and community and family and wisdom. So I just, I think that for me, in my opinion, we're in a very strange point right now in our culture, and I kind of want to transition this into talking to you about your passion for women's healing and intuitive healing. But we're in this weird place where as a rebellion against male oppression, which is totally valid, I want to rebel against that, women sort of thought, well, the only way to fight back against male oppression is to try to inhabit male roles and male spaces and to be just just as whatever as the men, you know, just as strong, just as tough, just as hard, whatever. And, you know, I lift weights, I work, I enjoy traditionally male-conceived identities and, and roles, but I think that we're stepping into this next phase where the same way that a teenager maybe has to rebel and then realizes, like, maybe mom was right, and then they step into that next phase, as women, I'm seeing a lot of women going, you know, actually, like, pretending to be a man all the time, it's exhausting, and that's not really what I am or what I want. And I do want to cook food for my children because they benefit from that and I benefit from that. And research shows that sitting down to a family dinner, you know, benefits everyone's health and longevity. So I think we're in this this awkward transition phase. Might I even say a labor, right? A sort of a transition portion of labor where we're birthing the next generation of what it means to be a woman and also what it means to heal. And so there's this... Um, parallel thing happening both with women like yourself, like myself, who are reclaiming these traditional healing practices. And then also we're seeing the medical field kind of saying, uh, maybe prevention is something we have to look into because just trying to develop cures is really expensive and we're not going to be able to do that forever. So framing all of that up in that way, you are very passionate in addition to your passion for kombucha, which is very evident and which people can learn so much about if they Google you. Obviously, it's just an unlimited source of kombucha information. And thank you for that, because just so everyone here knows, if you've ever Googled how to make kombucha, you have found Hannah's work. Like this is the person whose work comes up. This is the book you're going to be referred to. This is the website, the YouTube page, the tutorials. Like if you are a new kombucha curious this is the woman. This is the kombucha mama herself. This is where you're going to be sent by the Google, by the search engines. This is where you're going to be pointed. So thank you for that body of work that so many, probably millions of people at this point have benefited from. But maybe a lesser known part of your identity and work that you also do is on women's health and intuitive healing. So I would love to invite you now to speak a bit about that, about your work outside of kombucha. You have said so many, there's so much you have just shared. And um, I love, I love what you're saying. And um, yeah, I think as the pendulum swings, right? Like there's value to having different roles in society. There's value to women having skills that men don't have. There's value to men having skills that women don't have. Um, you know, 
and and how do we continue to uh, love each other and support each other in this evolution so that we can continue to find strength from each other? Because uh, we weren't we we aren't brave new world. I hope uh, we aren't here to just you know make babies in a lab and all do drugs to occupy our minds and you know blah, just be workers and <laughs> workers, right? Like like that isn't a world that I want to live in. I want to live in the world of the witches. I want to live in the world of the warlocks. I want to live in a world with chivalry. I want to live in a world where you know we can acknowledge and accept that there's divinity in all beings and and that you know there, there's so much beauty and value in all of that. And so I've been a passionate tarot uh, card reader for many years, just for myself, really, it started when I was 13. I am a Scorpio. So I feel like I nail my chart. And in fact, I think astrology is the oldest science. Again, this whole notion that we have to throw away things that our ancestors did, they literally built monuments that we don't even understand how they constructed for the stars. And we want to stand here from our 21st century perspective and say, well, that's not valid. That's not important. That like, it's crazy to me how much we want to disparage ancient wisdom, because here's the reality. The stars are exerting an effort on your existence, no matter whether you recognize it or not. So the question is, do you want to be ignorant and not understand how this energy is impacting you? Or do you want to take advantage of knowing what those energies are and working with them so that you get to take the full benefit of what it means to be a human being in a, in a universal cosmic ecosystem. And, and I also, uh, stumbled across, I mentioned it earlier, human design a couple of years ago, and it literally transformed how I've managed my energy. Like so much of our world is like, do, 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 make, 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 busy, 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 constant, constant, constant work. And that's great for certain people and certain energy types. I just don't happen to be one of those energy types. And while I am capable and I'm highly productive from, you know, starting a trade association, writing a book, setting up a kombucha code of practice, hosting a conference every year, publishing a magazine, uh, a website, a fulfillment, manufacturing, like it is the things that I do is, is crazy, right? It's like I, I'm constantly producing and I don't have energy for all of it. And when I learned human design and I've been able to figure out, oh, actually, for me, losing weight isn't about what you said earlier, move more, eat less. For me, it's deep rest, mm -hmm. neutrifying my organism through stress release in different ways and trusting that weight releases when you aren't oversaturated with too many things to do. And so and again, I love small business. I'm a huge lover of entrepreneurship. And I truly believe that any small business is a reflection of the business owner and because you can't help but bring your energy to it. And if your energy is full and complete, you're going to move like gangbusters. And if your energy is weak and depleted, there's going to be challenges. And so um, I'm really excited to offer uh, this context of human design and tarot to help business owners figure out what's in alignment for me. What's the best way to manage my energy? How do I start to... Um, go with this science experiment, because that's what they really call it, a science experiment, the science of differentiation. Like imagine you have a beehive, the bees have certain roles, and that makes their ability to function as a society 
wonderful because everyone understands what they're supposed to do and how they do it. And that's what sort of this science of differentiation is showing us. It's not saying you have to do this job or only fulfill this function. Rather, when you listen to your design and you do things that are in alignment for you, wow, you have all this great energy to be productive and valuable in this way. And when we're saying yes to things that aren't in our best interest, and then we feel guilty and I'm procrastinating and am I a bad person and how come I don't have energy for this and I'm lazy and I just don't want to do it. But reality is it probably isn't the right thing for you to be doing. And so if we can figure out how to put those energies in the right places. And for me, the tarot cards and the astrology, these are tools of reflection. This is a way in which I communicate with myself. It's not a hocus pocus predicting the future. And, you know, I mean, we could have all kinds of conversations about fate versus destiny versus, you know, free will and all this stuff. But um you know, I just think that there's so much value when we learn more about ourselves because you are the magic. There's no pill. There's no wand. There's no book. There's no one thing or multiple things that's actually going to do the work for you. You are the magic. But figuring out what your magic is and how to implement it, I think, is what's so important. And I, I love modalities and I love healers and I love the exploration that we get to do when we dive into this work. And it may not be everybody's language. It may not be everybody's cup of tea. And I see people really thirsting and craving this because as much as religion has sort of, I'm not saying it's fallen by the wayside, but a lot of people have then created science as a religion or, you know, the state dictates what is religion and, and different things. Uh, but really like we all have this deep longing to connect with those ineffable, with those mysterious, with the parts of ourselves in the world that simply have no explanation through, uh, again, through those five senses. And, and I just, I love that we get to embrace all of this right now and that we can have these conversations without being burned at the stake, uh, that we can embrace herbalism. Knock and on wood, my friend, <laughs> knock on wood, because you just never know when those stakes are coming back. You don't, and you don't know what they're going to be, right? Like, look at what happened during the pandemic. There was a lot of, you know, you're fired from your job. You're not right. following along with the policies we're putting forth. You're not allowed to question these things. You're not allowed to say this stuff. And I think people are really um, frustrated by that. And I, and rightly so, because I think that they were justified in asking questions. They were justified in wanting more information, more lively debate uh, and so forth. And I feel like this Pluto and Aquarius is really just the massive shift in consciousness and energy and how we work together and how are we going to get through challenging times together the way our ancestors did right? You're the, you're the, you're the offspring of people who survived the plagues, who've been through the revolutions. And all of that is still inside of you. That wisdom is there, but how we did it was through community. How we did it was by connecting with other people. And that's what right now is for is for finding those people who share your values, who share your passion. And here's the reality. I don't know what happens. Um, I don't know what decisions people are going to make. I don't know what ideologies they're going to have, but here's something I know when you are sane. And that word literally means healthy. And you know how you get there? Right here through your gut. When you get sane, I truly believe human beings are good at their core. They love community because this is how we existed forever. And that if they are allowed to not be constantly poisoned by chemicals, by propaganda, by fear, by division, by all of the politics and whatnot that are stoking, um, you know, 
really challenging outcomes and feeling awful and unsettled all the time. If we can put our blinders on and focus on ourselves and building our community, this is how we're going to get through this incredible change that is happening through this labor uh, as we uh, progress through this birth canal into whatever is next. Yes. Uh, I think that's truly how we're going to do it. And it's just by coming back in touch with who we already are and who we have been since the dawn of time or the beginning of man or who the heck knows. We don't even know what that yes. is, but yes. Uh, there's three things that I really want to say in response to that. So the first is I always tell people who are going to give birth this tidbit, but I think it really applies to our society right now. I've given birth three times at home, no doctors, no drugs, just me telling everyone around me to shut the fuck up. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me. I like to be very much in my zone when I'm giving birth. And so I've had all three times. I'm a very confident birther. I, you know, was very much in my place, in my zone. Each time I reach a place where I think, and I'm sure, I can't do this, and this is where I die, is right here. I'm. This is obviously my end. I'm falling apart. I cannot make it any further. I've been doing this for 12 hours. I can't make it. With my third birth, I turned to the midwife and I said, I feel like I can't make it right now. And I know that means that the baby's about to come out. And she was like, that's right. <laughs> and five minutes later, there was a baby in my hands. So I say that to say, I think that when we reach these points, as you just said, we are all descended from those who survived all of the worst things that we hear about. Oh my God, the plague, everyone died. Well, not everyone or you wouldn't be here, right? So I say this to say, if you feel like you're in that place where you just can't do it anymore, that is right before the breakthrough. That is right before the baby gets put in your arms. That is right before the most beautiful thing that has ever happened to you happens. And you just have to have that experience to know. That's why I'm so glad I was a teen mom because I didn't have that wisdom as a young person. But as a 19-year-old having that experience, it taught me early, okay, that moment right before you think you're going to die, that's right before the best thing that ever happened to you enters your world. So I keep that with me. And that is my prayer and my hope for society is that we're in one of those challenging times right now. And it just takes those of us who have that wisdom and that patience and have built those muscles through repetition to go, okay, we're in a hard time and everyone wants to give up and everyone wants to be us versus them and very reductionist and angry. And I'm not willing to be reductionist and I'm not willing to be angry because I know that it is messy and complicated. I'm present to that complexity. And I know that when it feels like the end, it's only the beginning. And the beginning is so much better than anything you could possibly imagine. So Everything you just said, I totally resonate with and just want to reflect back that these transitions are difficult, but we can do hard things and there are great things on on the other side of it. Man, I feel like there's like a million things actually that I wanted to say in response to what you said. But oh, another really important thing that I always tell people because I've spoken to a lot of people who are experiencing health challenges and I always say to them, okay, when we have a negative symptom, we think the body is being bad or stupid or wrong. But the body is actually a very wise creature that's always seeking homeostasis. And so if it's doing something that feels to us bad, might we reframe it and say, the body's actually smart. The body is doing something good. I'm not understanding it correctly. So for example, if you have eczema all over your body, as I have in the past, you might think, that's bad. 
I should put a steroid on it and tell my body you're being stupid and bad. But all you're doing then is sending the message your body was desperately trying to share with you back into your liver, back into your immune system to deal with it. And it can't deal with it. That's why it was trying to send it out to you to say, help, somebody please listen to me. So rather than looking at um, our bodies when they're sick as being wrong or bad, if we can shift that frame and go, okay, wait, maybe I'm just not understanding what my body is trying to tell me. And if I can just decide that my body is actually smart, and it's trying to tell me something, then I can shift the way that I respond to this symptom, the way I react to the symptom, the way I proceed from the symptom. The same thing, I believe, is true of what's going on in our society right now. Again, a lot of us versus them, a lot of anger, a lot of, well, how could he possibly think that way? He's obviously a monster, right? And we really want to just cancel people, shut them down, make them wrong, make them bad. If we stayed curious and compassionate and we said, okay, that seems wrong to me, but that person is also a human. So I have to know that they are really sure that they're right. And if they're sure that they're right, then there must be some lens through which what they're saying and doing is correct. And how can I get curious and get into that lens to understand what they're dealing with so I can actually reach out and build that bridge? Because to me, I have my own traumas, my own struggles, my own past. And like you said, everyone's different. We all inhabit different roles in society. I love to be on camera, for example, right? I love to be recorded. I love the podcast. And I love to read literature. But would I want to be like in a lab with like a pipette for like 10 hours a day, not seeing anyone, you know, surviving on like coffee and nothing else? No, like that's not for me. And not because I'm not a hard worker. I'm a hard worker. I work hard all day long. But I'd rather be here sharing, connecting, right, like just vibing out in the world. And there are brilliant scientists and, and brilliant writers and researchers and doctors and all the engineers who wouldn't – this would be their nightmare, right? <laughs> like being with lights and cameras and recorded, they'd be like, oh, my God, someone just please kill me. But they do incredible work behind the scenes. So we do need these different types of people. And, and we're all going to respond because we're all so different. We're going to respond to trauma differently. We're going to respond to diet differently. We're going to respond to probiotics differently. And we have to leave room for that. And so not that we should tolerate hatred, bigotry. We shouldn't celebrate that, of course. But if someone is saying something really bigoted, how can we get curious about what happened to them that informed that perspective? And how can we use that curiosity to build a longer table, to build a bridge, to, you know, there's a really amazing guy, Daryl Davis, I think his name is. He is a black man. He's a musician. And he goes to KKK meetings, which as a black man is terrifying. But this man is brave and he is bigger than life. And he just said, I'm going to go into these spaces where I am hated, deeply hated. They say out loud that they want to kill me. And I'm going to walk in the door. And I'm going to listen to them and I'm going to ask why they think that my life isn't worth anything. And he has transformed the world. He's had people who were like grand wizards of the KKK hand in their, their sheet to him and say, I'm sorry, you are my friend. How can we get the Daryl Davis energy out here? You know, how can we take that to every level of our societal problems? Because 
When we're just bickering back and forth, they're obviously stupid. Well, if you think they're obviously stupid, they think you're obviously stupid. How can we get curious about each other again? And then one more thing is to bring it back to the bacteria sapiens and how as we understand ourselves as multi-organismal creatures, we reframe our place in the universe. For me, that experience of recolonizing myself and revisioning myself as someone who needs to be colonized to be my full self, it was a spiritual awakening for me because I wasn't spiritual and I didn't have religion, which I kind of luckily, right, never really got religion. But the minute I was reconstituting my microbes and understanding that there is this cloud around me. There is something going inside of me. It's producing things for me. I depend on it and it depends on me. Suddenly you realize you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. And I just saw a beautiful graphic today that showed like individual, community, planet, you know, universe. And so to your point about stars having an energy and exerting influence on us, I do think, you know, people don't have to do astrology, whatever, like follow your bliss and find meaning where it lives for you. And if that's meditation or if it's fitness or whatever it is. But I do think that when we step back and we see ourselves as part of a larger system and a larger organism, like I often think a lot about how I am a gut microbe in the gut of the universe. And I send up my prayers to the universe that it send good things to my life. And once in a while, it sends me a car crash. And I'm like, what the hell? I asked for good things. But then I think, well, once in a while, my gut bacteria asks for kimchi and I send it chocolate cake. So who's the asshole now? You know? Who's creating the internal car crash? Exactly. So I have to have like sympathy and empathy for the universe because I don't always get it right. I am the I am the magical creature who's who's home to all these organisms and they call out and they beg for things and they say, please send us kombucha. Please send us fiber. Please send us proteins and nutrients and minerals. And once in a while, I'm like, you can have chocolate cake, you know, and they're like, fuck. But then the same thing happens to us as humans. We say, God, the universe, magical creatures of the world, please send us good things. And once in a while, it's a car crash. And so we are all part of these complex interwoven systems. We are multi-organismal, multidimensional. And I think you said this, and I'm going to say it too. I don't need it to be simple. I don't need to understand all of it. That's okay. It's messy. I think the fact that messy is good is good enough for me. Absolutely. And um, I, I, I want to like just hold this energy because it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. And it, it transcends ideology. It transcends, um, you know, any specific lens through which we can view the universe. Because, I mean, at the heart of religion, it's that we're all connected through love, Right. And I think it's the inflammation. It's the literal physiological inflammation that is driving this insane desire to point fingers and create division. And it's the poisons in the food supply. It's the poisons in the air. It's the poisons in the water. It's the poisonous consumption of, you know, the, the algorithm feeding you the negative stuff that you keep clicking on. And that's where we just got to get outside get into the sunshine, breathe some fresh air, put your bare feet onto the earth and remember that we are all 
we are all made of mother earth. We are all going to go back to, you know, we're made of dirt, hum, humus, human beings. Like we come from dirt. We're going to go back to dirt when we're done. And what a blessing. This is paradise. This is heaven. This where we live is the most exotic, beautiful, gorgeous place in the universe. Um, and the more that we can just shift those energies back into gratitude for being where we are, like you said, not making an enemy out of our bodies, trusting that there's some really deep wisdom happening there. And it's hard because again, the marketing, the TV shows, the, you know, everything is geared towards selling you something and they've studied the psychology. How I get you to buy something is first, I make you feel bad about where you are now. And and what we're blessed with is in this day and age is that we can choose to then not have to listen to those things, or we can choose to put uh, different inputs into our body. And, and this ultimately is what brewing kombucha or any fermented food is about. It's if you give an organism what it needs to thrive, it will. And by engaging in this process, by putting this counterculture, this entire universe onto your kitchen counter, interacting with it on a weekly basis, enjoying the, the health benefits, uh, uh, you know, the fruits of your own labor, your own energy, it, it really, it becomes this micro way of, of planting that seed so it can be executed on the macro level as well. So to put it all back into perspective, ferment anything. Yes. <laughs> Kombucha is great, but anything you can ferment or make at home or cultivate a plant, anything is just going to help you figure out, replace yourself into that entire fabric, that tapestry of the universe so that we remember that life is worth living and what makes it worth living are all the wonderful people, places and experiences that we get to have. And, you know, we live many lives in one lifetime and I love growing up. I love growing. This is why my motto from Kombucha Brewers International is we grow together. Our mission at Kombucha Camp is changing the world one gut at a time. We know we can't do it alone. We have to do it in symbiosis. We have to do it with other people. We need many voices sharing the same information so that it becomes a chorus that then allows us to plug in and, and share our own voice in there with it as well. So thank you, Marion. You are a wonderful hostess. You're so knowledgeable and wise. And I just have loved every minute of our conversation and hope we get to do it again. Yes, I have loved it as well. And I love, I was just thinking like, I had this outline and I love that I was so cute thinking that you and I wouldn't just go into the big picture and talk about the universe. Like, of course, that's where we were really going to go. But we did also tackle so many things. And so I just want to ask in closing, what's next for you? Do you have anything new and exciting coming up that you want to share about? Well, today is World Kombucha Day. This is a holiday that my husband invented back in 2016, right as our book was coming out, but we didn't have time to execute it. So 2020 is when we launched World Kombucha Day through Kombucha Brewers International. And uh, it's, it's exciting. We're working on a 10-year anniversary of the book. There's so much more information to put into it. And I think people are just starting to learn. There are lots of people who just have never even heard of kombucha still. And so we're always excited to educate new people. And of course, for those of you who've been on this journey, even longer than I have, or you have, um, you know, it's exciting to see how this ancient food can really have such a tremendous impact on the world. And again, I'm leaning into the human design and the tarot and the consulting small businesses there. And I, I don't know, I just I feel like there's, I, I like, I have so many things that are coming in. Now it's like figuring out how to plan them all out. But I just, I'm excited for life. I really love it. And um, 
Uh, I've stepped away from my role as president of KBI. I'm still a founding board member and on the board and I love my industry. And I just know that I'm going to serve kombucha better when I can be um, in this bigger role, in this role of, of, of all the ways of getting kombucha out into the world. Commercial is one way. That's how I learned about it. That's how we still have GTs in our fridge every week. You know, as much as we brew our own, we also love to enjoy commercial. And I think that's that's a normal way to enjoy and experience all the finer things in life is making it yourself and, and enjoying the store-bought. And yeah, big things are on the horizon and I'm just keep following along. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I hope that we sent out a lot of love today. I know that we were both pouring it out and I'm so grateful to you for being here, for educating the masses about kombucha, for welcoming me into the kombucha mama tribe. You know, like I say, I wouldn't even have known to look for that sort of community, but it was so welcome and I was so grateful to find it. So between kombucha camp and KBI and your work, and of course we'll have links in the show notes to point everyone towards the book and the work, but I'm deeply grateful for everything that you've brought to the kombucha industry, to the kombucha community, and to society at large. So thank you, kombucha mama Hannah, for being here. And um, yeah, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day and happy World Kombucha Day. See, we're bacterial sapiens doing our bacteria dance. I got my flagella. Yes, these are my little flagella. I'm a seaweed. I'm a kombu. How do you celebrate World Kombucha Day? Do the flagella. Do the flagella. Do the flagella. Uh, uh. <laughs> and now I'm a scoby and I'm really creepy. <laughs> Bacteria dance. Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com. For more information on my guest, Hannah Crum, or her website, Kombucha Camp, please find the links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>